Our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us. And God, we do ask that you would help us this morning, uh, that you'd help us to hear your word for us. God, we pray that you would help us uh, to come to know you better and to know how better to walk with you in, uh, in our days today and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately, uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed." Turning then to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, first 14 verses of Galatians 3. Paul continues his letter to the church in Galatia by saying, You foolish Galatians, a great line, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, 
I have been saying for the last several weeks that we were going to get back to our study through the book of Genesis, and that is where we are this morning, and we are looking at Genesis chapter 46, verses 1 through 27. And um, this is a part of the story where uh, Pharaoh, Joseph is in Egypt, there's a famine in the whole land, and Pharaoh has said, hey, Joseph, have your dad and all your family come here to live in the land of Egypt um, and I'll give them the best of the land. That's kind of where we left off, is that was the invitation, was to come to Egypt. But, um, but that invitation is kind of, kind of a tricky one if we follow the story thus far. Uh, just by way of reminder, do you remember in Genesis 12, when there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt? This is chapter 12, verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And if you recall what happened while he was there, that's when he lied about uh, his wife actually being his wife, and it kind of caused problems. And this is right after God had said that uh, it's through you that all the nations on earth are going to be blessed. And then we see him going to Egypt and actually bringing plagues upon the people, and it's, it's not good. Well, if you skip forward, he does it again, but uh, (laughs) in a different place. But if you skip forward to chapter 26 in Genesis, we are now on to Abraham's son, Isaac. And it starts this way. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Okay. So, so far, we saw there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt, and that was not a good thing. Then we see another famine that happens later in the land, and God appears to Isaac specifically to tell him, don't go to Egypt. So he doesn't go. He still repeats the same mistakes of Abraham, just in a different place. And now we get to... um, in this time of Isaac's son, Jacob, and there's a famine in the land again. And now there's an invitation from Pharaoh himself. Come to Egypt. So what do you do? Should he go or should he not go? This is where we pick up the story. Genesis chapter 46. So Israel, that's Jacob, So Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Hmm. For I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba and Israel's sons and took their father Jacob and their children and their wives in the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. So Jacob and all his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons his, and his daughters and granddaughters, all his offspring. 
These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went to Egypt. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob. The sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Obad, Ohad, Jacob, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan had died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez, Hezron, and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tolapua, uh, Jashub, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These were the sons Leah bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, besides his daughter Dinah. These sons and daughters of his were 33 in all. The sons of Gad, Zephon, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Arodai, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, and Bariah. Their sister was Sarah. The sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These were the children born to Jacob by Zilpah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Leah, 16 in all. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. In Egypt, Manasseh, Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. The sons of Benjamin, Bilah, Baker, Ashbel, Gera, Naman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppim, Huppim, and Ard. These were the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, or sorry, the son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, uh, Gunai, Jezer, and Shillam. These were the sons born to Jacob by Bilhah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Rachel, seven in all. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. <sighs> all right. So, what we were looking at before reading this was this idea that uh, there's a famine in the land and those before him have been either gone to Egypt and had problems or have been specifically told by God not to go to Egypt. And yet here we have not only uh, this one guy, Jacob, going to Egypt, but we have, I mean, Jacob has already had his name changed to Israel and he has now had all these uh, kids. These are now, I mean, this is the, the start of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he is taking the whole family to Egypt. They're all going. And one of the reasons why this might have been a problem is because God had specifically made promises to this family in Abraham's time and repeated them to Isaac and Jacob that that land where they already were living was going to be their family land down through the generations. And yet here they are leaving that land, going to Egypt. What in the world? Um, so I want to look at this with kind of three, <laughs> three ways of looking at it. One, having to do with our, our walk with God, what we can learn about that, what we can learn about the character of God, and then what we can learn about the promises of God. And it's all really tied in with the character of God. <laughs> here's, here's where this goes. Um, we have Jacob. Did you notice what he did before he left the land? This is fascinating. Before he actually leaves the land that God had promised to them, um, it says, so Israel set out with all that was his, and when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. He's still in the land. Beersheba's in the land. Beersheba has a big connection with things that have happened earlier in the lives of his father and grandfather. 
And so here he gets to this point, and it's almost like this is sort of that point of no return. If there's no food here, we stay here, we die. On the other hand, I don't want to leave here without your blessing. Is it, is it okay for me to go to where Joseph is in Egypt? Is it okay for me to go to where there's food in Egypt? Is that okay? Or do I need to stay here? And so he gets to Beersheba and he builds this altar. And I think this has to do with our walk with God. Like there's like every step we take, this is how it ought to be going. Is this kind of checking in with God? Is, is this right? Am I on the right track? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing or not? And in uh, Jacob's case, he gets a very clear answer. And God appears to him in this vision and <laughs> calls him by name and says, don't be afraid to go on down there. This actually is okay for you to do. So this brings up the question then of the character of God. Because we say, but he already said to Isaac, don't go to Egypt. Now he's telling Jacob something different. What is this? Is God just changing his mind all the time? He doesn't know what should be done or not done? He's changing his policies? What is going on? And no, we are told throughout Scripture uh, that that is not what God is doing. Um, that's the kind of thing that people do. And when we sort of imagine God to be just an exaggerated version of ourselves, we think, oh, yeah, he's probably changed his mind like I changed my mind. And we're told, no, he's not. He doesn't change his mind. But there are things that have changed since his last thing. So one thing is he had told Isaac, don't go to Egypt. Now he tells Jacob, it's okay to go to Egypt. So one of the things that's different, God is not different, but the people are different. He's telling somebody else to do something. And that is something we see very consistently throughout the scripture of uh, God giving one person to do this and somebody else to do that. Okay. But there's something else that's changed in uh, the intervening times of these two commands. It's time. Things have happened in the meantime. So, for example, think about uh, what would have happened if Isaac had gone to Egypt and had stayed there. That means Jacob and Esau would have been raised in Egypt instead of in the promised land. All the things that you know about Jacob and Esau, all their relationship and the struggles they were having in the promised land, that may have looked completely different if they were in Egypt. And even Jacob leaving uh, and going back to where the family was, and that's where he ended up getting um, married and uh, starting his family. All of that was back in Haran. That's maybe way too far away from Egypt. Maybe they don't make that trip. Maybe we don't have these 12 sons and one daughter. Maybe the whole thing doesn't go the way that it needs to go. But beyond all that, then there's the whole story of Joseph that we've been reading. If they're already in Egypt, Joseph doesn't get sold in slavery to Egypt. And it's through this whole story of Joseph that we have seen uh, character development within Joseph and within all his brothers that we see each of them at various points displaying the character of God. Maybe that doesn't happen if Isaac goes to Egypt. But now all of that has taken place. And now we're to a new step in the progression of what needs to happen for the people of God. And so now... God says, okay, now the time is right. Now I want you to go. And, um, I mean, we see the same kind of thing in 
in the commands Jesus gives. There are times that Jesus tells his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles. And then other times where he says, go and take uh, this message everywhere, the ends of the earth. There are times where he tells his disciples, stay in Jerusalem, don't leave. But he also says, go, you're going to be my uh, witnesses to the ends of the earth. Like, is Jesus changing his mind? No. <laughs> it's the same thing that we're seeing is that as, uh, as times change and as events change, as the whole thing is unfolding, we see that there is, okay, now it's time for the next thing. So, for example, this is um, where we see this clearest, I think, back-to-back, is in Acts chapter 1. This is after Jesus' resurrection. And in, in verse, starting in verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is this distinction. In other words, something's going to happen in between. So they are to stay in Jerusalem, not forever until something happens. What is it that's going to happen? The Holy Spirit of God will be poured out on them. And when that happens, they don't need to stay in Jerusalem anymore. At that point, now they have a different role to play. Now they have a different uh, calling. They have a different responsibility. They have a different command that they are supposed to be obeying. And that is to go uh, not only to Jerusalem, but into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this is the same kind of thing that we're seeing with, um, with this command in Genesis for Jacob. Don't be afraid. Go on to Egypt. And so one of the things that we are learning is, about God is that, no, he's not changing his mind. But two, that he does have the whole thing under his hand, under his watchful eye, under his uh, creative purposes. Um, and so if you have read through the whole rest of the Bible, you have this part where Jacob is going down to Egypt and you're like, well, yeah, that's what's going to need to happen if these other things are going to take place. Jacob doesn't know that at this point, but God does. He is the author of the whole thing. He is the author of all of our uh, stories. That's why history is called his story. Okay, maybe not, but it helps. This is where um, we see the character of God, not only in that he's not changing his mind, but also that he is uh, the one who is over all the circumstances of our lives. That's why we look to him to give us uh, our direction. But there's still that kind of elephant in the room and the problem that we have. um, The problem we have of Jacob leaving the promised land, and that is just the fact that it is the promised land. Right? If this land is what's been promised to him and his descendants, and now they are leaving, what does this mean about the promises of God? 
Are they not going to be fulfilled? Well, I think that's part of why we have to read this huge list of names. Because there were several promises made to Abraham. One, he's going to be the father of many nations. Two, he's going to, uh, his, his descendants are going to live in this land. And then three, he's going to be a blessing through him. All people on earth are going to be blessed, right? So we see them leaving the land and we go, uh-oh, what about that promise about the land? And it's almost like at this point we get that reminder, well, hold on now. Think about all the promises. And look what's already happening. Because one of the things that's happened is we have, did you notice there was such a, not just an importance given to the names, but also the number? You can work the math on this and counting up the names and getting it to all add up right. It's kind of tricky. <laughs> uh, but there's a, it seems like there's a very important point being made by saying there were 70 people. 70 and this isn't just like it's bragging like this, guess how many people I had come to my house for Thanksgiving kind of a thing. It's not just a logistical nightmare of trying to get them from there to Egypt. The number 70 is there because that's the same number we got way back in um, Genesis 10. Genesis 10, right after... Noah and the ark. Then we have this spreading out into all the nations of the world. And all the nations of the world come up to 70. And it is a way of representing that. Now, what we are told is that Abraham's family, down through Isaac and down through Jacob, 70 people as though these people are now representative of all the nations of the world. This is important. This is important because of what it's going to mean blessing-wise in the future, but it's also important because it's showing already some seed of fulfillment to that original promise that Abraham was going to be the father of many nations, a father of multitudes. That's what his name got changed to mean. And so when we look at them leaving the land and we go, uh-oh, maybe God's not going to fulfill his promise, we are immediately reminded, oh, God is fulfilling his promise. And he is fulfilling this promise here, and we can trust that if he's fulfilling this one, he's fulfilling all of them. He will get to all of it in its right time. And so we learn, uh, even through this long list of names about the character of God and how his uh, the ways that he works and the promises that he keeps, which is, of course, then carries forward for us as well. And we look at the, uh, the promises that he makes to us. And we might look at some of our own circumstances and say, I don't know. I don't know. Is he really going to keep what he said he's going to do? Is he really going to be with us through all of the things that we face? And we go back to stuff like this and we go, well, well, yes, that's what we see about the character of God. This is what we see when what we looked at last week with uh, Jesus raised from the dead, who then says to his disciples, and surely I am with you always. Always. 
Can we trust that? Yeah. And he's not going to change his mind, and he is going to be faithful. So when it comes to then our walk with God, we come back to the character and the promises, and we say we know we can trust God. So how do we walk with him? How do we uh, look to him for direction? And this is what we get to in uh, a lot of the New Testament of what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight, what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. Sometimes we want to look to the Bible and just, just tell me what to do. Just give me the what do I do right here. And what we get instead are things like, and I know this is probably not an issue for you, but food sacrificed to idols. That was an issue for the early church. What do we do with this? Should, uh, should Gentiles be circumcised or not circumcised? What do we do with this? And there were these uh, questions that people had. And the answers seemed to be, sometimes, sometimes not. Maybe for this person, yes, they should eat the food sacrificed for idols, and this person should not eat it at all. And there are various reasons given as to why that would be the case. You're going to say, Just tell me which one to do. <laughs> We have the same thing in the book of Proverbs where there will be a proverb given that says uh, not to answer a fool according to their folly, but then also answer a fool according to their folly. Like it's seen as a bad thing and also a good thing. Which do you do? And it requires wisdom. And the same thing with how we apply Scripture to our lives. It's with wisdom that comes from this ongoing, living, loving, trusting relationship with God through Jesus. That's how we know. It's that going back to the whole story over and over again and seeing ourselves as a part of this story, even moving forward. And this is how we am doing this together. This is how we live by the Spirit and how we walk by the Spirit, how we live and walk by faith. It's not as simple. We don't get as many simple answers. But life is complex. And real life is complex too. Um, but, as I say, one of the things we learn going through this is it's okay because God is uh, someone who can be trusted and whose character is, uh, is true and sure. So with all this in mind, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And we thank you for the promises you have made. We thank you for the ways that you can be trusted. Lord, we pray that you would help us in our times of confusion where we don't understand um, what you are telling us to do. We pray that you would give us patience, give us insight, give us wisdom. And Lord, especially for the times that we do know what you're telling us to do. And we have an instinctive, um, rebellious response. I pray that you would help us with that as well. Or that you would help us to trust you, to do the things that you are leading us to do, that we would be the people that you've created us to be, that we would be um, better and better representatives of you in this world. Lord, that we would show people uh, better your character, your heart, 
your holiness, and your mercy. Lord, we pray this all in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.